Josh, thank you so much. It is always great to have you here and to have the musical contributions that you bring and the, the sort of genius of your vast repertoire, um, which brings to us such, such awesome music. Thank you. It is good to be here, and I want to say hello to our folks who are joining us on Facebook Live. Um, Robin has put a little, um, Robin, our, our communications person, has put a little um, piece of masking tape, and I'm not supposed to walk past it because I'll go off of our video feed, so I'm going to rely on all of you that if I go past the center of the stage, just go like, ee, you know, um, so that I know. <laughs> I can't really promise that I'm going to do that successfully, Robin, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> oh, luckily, this particular platform actually has a lot of quotes in it um, from other people because, as it turns out, I am uniquely unqualified to give it. Um, <laughs> This is an auction platform, which means it was purchased through the West Auction. It's the second one that I've done this year. Um, and uh, let me just, it, the original title um, from Perry Sedman, who purchased it, um, was Capitalism, Anarchy, and Collective Liberation. Um, just a few minor ideas and topics in um, world <laughs> politics and economy. I have actually... Um, I've actually never taken um, an economics class or a college-level political science class. Um, so I am literally more qualified to talk about rocket science in platform. I took on the college level both astronomy and computer science, and I feel those two things are related to rocket science. So, um, <laughs> so um, when I got this uh, ask from Perry, um, I'll just tell you what he wrote. He wrote, the system of capitalism in this country keeps us all in our place at each other's throats and takes advantage of the most severely disadvantaged people. Economic oppression is evil. The rich get richer. He, he goes on. We have obscene wealth inequality that is off the charts. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Anarchism is not a dirty word. It has many nuanced meanings, meanings and strains and does not necessarily require violence. I would like you to shake up the audience, point out the evils of capitalism, and open their minds to anarchism as a way to collective liberation. So Perry's not here. He'll come at the 1130. But if you see him at the end, I want you to say, wow, that platform really pointed out the evils of capitalism, opened my mind to anarchy as a way to collective liberation. Everybody got it? Okay. Excellent. So... Um, as I said, I'm totally unqualified to give this platform, but it doesn't matter, I decided, because first of all, it doesn't actually take um, a genius or someone who has studied this in any way um, to know that, in fact, something is wrong um, with the way that capitalism is existing currently in America. And then the other thing that's helpful is that I know a lot of very smart people. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about number one first. And then we'll see what number two does to help us out. So I want to share just some statistics with you. I suspect that none of these will be particularly new to you. And actually, we talked about them a couple of weeks ago, some of them in a different platform that I gave about money more generally, about the concept of money. Um, but income inequality in America, Perry sort of put out in his initial ask about this platform um, the idea that that, in fact, the income inequality found in America is really unacceptable, and I would agree with that. Um, according to Wikipedia, measured for which, which compiled data from a number of different institutions, measured for all households 
U.S. income inequality is comparable to other developed countries before taxes and transfers, but is among the highest in developed countries after taxes and transfers, which means that in America we shift relatively less income through taxation from higher income households to lower income households. We have significant income inequality in America, and as you probably know, it has been growing um, really sort of since the um, 60s. I'm going to look at uh, one of my economists. Is that right? Earlier, later. 70s, thanks, and since the 70s, as I originally said. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that has a, a variety of effects. One in five children in America is food insecure, um, which means that they live in a home where food is not always readily available. Enough food is not available to them. 13% of Americans live below the federally defined poverty line, which is itself pretty darn low. Living above the poverty line does not guarantee a comfortable existence in America. And many of us have simply a lived experience that capitalism isn't working out that well in America, whether in our own lives or in the lives of our family or friends or the world that we see around us. Delman Coates, who's the senior pastor at Mount Anan Baptist Church in Clinton, Maryland, which is a a church of 9,000 um, really devoted to social justice issues, spoke recently at the American, the American Monetary Institute. And he said, monetary reform is the number one human and civil rights issue of our day. That became very clear for me. He went on that Martin Luther King understood that money and economics were the cause of injustice that we see in the world today. At its core, our monetary system appears to be the foundational systemic reality that produces much of the poverty, inequality, and injustice in our society. And then Vic Zink on Twitter. It's always hard to quote people from Twitter because I don't have their full names. I just have their Twitter handles. So Vic Zink said, but this caught my imagination a number of weeks ago, actually, when I saw it. The great American pretense is that communism is to blame for breadlines in Havana, but capitalism isn't to blame for poverty in Detroit. So we look around America and see some problems. We see growing income inequality. We see people living in poverty. We see unacceptable situations in both urban America and rural America. What then do we do about it? So that's where I turned to the experts. I will say um, that it's a little bit intimidating sometimes to serve this community, in part because on any given Sunday, there are surely one or two people in the gathered um, congregation that actually are experts in whatever field I have just read um, two or three articles on, or even better, um, found some quotes online um, to share my wisdom. So I'll just note that and hope that you all have a little bit of pity on me, not just today, but in general, we have so many activists and policymakers and uh, students and thinkers and readers in this community that I tend to get just a little worried. But still, um, I feel lucky uh, about that. And so one of the folks that I spoke with was um, Elise Gould, um, who's here and can just uh, wave her hand when I get anything wrong. Um, Elise is a senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute and a member of the Ethical Society. And Elise sent me a uh, what, she was incredibly generous. She actually spoke with her colleagues about, about this platform and um, sent me a huge number of articles to read, which I truly tried to read many of them, Elise. <laughs> there 
was one that started out um, with an explanation of a camping trip and talked about how most camping trips are organized under socialist principles, right? You don't go to a camping trip with, you know, four, four families and say, there were all of these great examples, you know, well, I caught more fish at the river, so I'll be eating the better fish and you can have like one fish and then baked beans, you know? And, nor do you come and say, you know, I brought the cooking stove, so only I will use it, too bad for you. Um, I, I actually did great with that article because I have been on camping trips. <laughs> and understand the basic concepts of them um, until about page four when he left the metaphor of the camping trip and, and included more on economics uh, more generally. Um, and so what I ended up doing was writing to Elise and saying, so Elise, just tell me what the problem is with capitalism in America, and I'll quote you here. So here's what I have to say. <laughs> And actually, the interesting thing is she and then another um, expert that I spoke with, um, who I'll talk about in a minute, um, said much the same thing. Um, so she says the biggest problem is that proceeds of the economy are not distributed equitably. Inequality and how the proceeds are distributed has gotten too high. That's something that we experience and see whether or not we read long articles and books and have PhDs in economics, right? It doesn't happen equitably on its own. I can understand that as well. Capitalism actually has worked out relatively well for me. And as much as I try to give um, to charity and to communities that I care about, including, of course, this community, I don't give up all of my wealth and distribute it around. Politics, she says, can twist it in one way or another. And she notes that recently this was allowed to happen by weaker labor standards, weakened unions, uh, deregulation, and tax policy. To make capitalism work better, she says, you need strong protections for consumers. Think the FDA, the Consumer Federal Protection Bureau, the EPA, for workers through unions, National Labor Relations Board, Department of Labor. You need financial stabilization and recession protection. Think the Federal Reserve and financial regulations. I really appreciated her parenthetical think things because I understand those words. Also, a great social safety net when things don't go well. Job loss, health shocks, and retirement. So you need social security, unemployment insurance, and insurance and paid leave. I posted on Facebook about that particular essay that I got through the beginning of, the one about the camping trip, and heard from an old friend of mine who I haven't seen in many years, he lives in Philadelphia now, who um, wrote me a Facebook message and, and, and asked about the author of that particular article, who it turns out was, as he referred to him, his, his grandfather in thesis work. It was his thesis advisor's thesis advisor. Um, so Rob Hughes is the assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics at Wharton School. And um, he went back and forth with me recommending a number of additional books and articles. And then I said, could you just tell me what you think is wrong with capitalism? And he did. Um, so I have some thoughts from him as well. He echoes much of what Elise talked about, about the social safety net. Um, but he goes on, capitalism has a lot of good things about it, he writes. It promotes efficient production and the development of new products, both of which help to satisfy the needs and wants of a large population. At its best, it gives many people a kind of freedom that other economic systems don't provide. Every capitalist economy has some degree of economic inequality, but vast inequality is not a necessary feature of capitalism. One of the major sources of inequality in our system is inherited wealth. The opportunity to bequeath and to good Elise is nodding and to inherit is a central feature of capitalism. He wrote, "Though I would not ban inheritance, increasing taxes on large inheritances and large gifts to individuals could reduce inequality in the long run." 
Perhaps the most serious problem with economic inequality, and here he gets to the social safety net idea, is the dependence of poor people on the discretionary charity of the better off. The idea that you're um, dependent on people, richer people, deciding that they want to give money to causes that will support you. Charity, he writes, is admirable, but a just economic system does not make people dependent on charity for their basic needs. A just economic system ensures that people who cannot meet their needs through work can get public support. What I appreciated about both of these uh, experts, beside the fact that they were willing to take my um, questions and ultimately spoon-feed me answers, um, is that they speak to the possibility that capitalism as we experience it in America could in fact be changed, not just in small ways, but rather dramatically, to serve more of the population better. That we would be able to create a capitalist society that looks distinctly different from the one that we have now. So what about anarchy? <laughs> Thanks a lot, Perry, for that. I want to note that it's not exactly a parallel, right, capitalism and anarchy. Anarchy is a political system first and foremost, or in some ways actually a lack of a system, an idea, a concept. And although it certainly includes economics and has, um, has economic implications, um, it's not an economic system, whereas capitalism is primarily an economic system which is actually compatible with a number of different political systems. Perry helped out when he asked me to speak about capitalism by talking about some of its definitions that are helpful for him. Anarchism, he wrote uh, about anarchism, sorry. Anarchism is a political tradition, a theoretical framework, and an organizing practice that opposes tyranny in all forms and works to create liberatory social organizations that maximize equality, freedom, and cooperation while minimizing coercion, oppression, and exploitation. Of course, I wanted to do some of my own research on that. And luckily, we not only have economists in this congregation, we also have anarchists. I love that about West, right? Here we are a community with plenty of people in many places on the um, sort of political ideology spectrum. And so I went to Dana Pope, one of our, I think Dana actually calls herself an anarchish. Like, she's not quite an anarchist, but an anarchish, you know, and, um, and asked her for um, places to go where I could learn more about anarchy. She sent me to Bob Black, um, the author of The Abolition of Work and Other Essays, and a well-known anarchist. And I actually really recommend, if you Google Bob Black and anarchy, you, you will, or if you email me, I'll send you the link. There was a great sort of um, frequently asked questions about anarchy that he put together that's available online, which I found really useful. And one of my takeaways from it was the idea that, in fact, um, for many um, millennia, people organized themselves through um, anarchy, um, lived in essentially anarchist societies, and um, that it worked reasonably well. That at its heart, anarchy is about people making collective decisions together without a hierarchy, without um, a small number of people making those decisions for them. Bob Black also goes on to point out, there's sort of the, um, uh, one of the, one of the Q&As talks about violence in anarchy, the idea that um, anarchy is violent, and he points out, I think similarly to the um, idea of bread lines um, from communism and poverty in Detroit from capitalism. He points out that, in fact, um, the, the current systems that we live under, um, uh, 
the form of democracy that we have in America is an exceptionally violent um, force in the world. Um, but anarchy doesn't even have to have violence associated with it, not at all. In fact, anarchist societies, if they are run well, are about collective decision-making, about putting the authority for decisions in the people making up the community. Several of you also sent me an interview, which um, was just yesterday, I think, on NPR, um, called The Accidental Anarchist. And I recommend that you listen to it. It was a great interview. Um, it speaks to Karn Ross, who is a British federal employee, relatively high up in the system and um, in diplomacy uh, internationally, and who left it all and um, became an anarchist and uh, ended up making this film called The Accidental Anarchist um, about his own conversion experience. He spoke about uh, Rojava, an area on the border of Turkey and Syria, where today about two million people are um, building essentially an anarchist society, um, using anarchist ideals for collective decision-making and organizing themselves around that. So where does all of this leave us? The tweaks to capitalism or the total change to different kinds of government, how do we get from where we are, which we know isn't quite right, to some other place we haven't yet created or envisioned? One of my favorite Martin Luther King quotes, um, because it lets me off the hook so well, <laughs> is uh, something like, um, it's the preacher's job to say that justice should roll down like waters and the politician's job to figure out the plumbing. <laughs> that applies, I think, here. Certainly, as I look around at the world around me and at our own country, and in fact, our own city, D.C. has one of the highest income inequalities anywhere in the country, um, I think following only New York and San Francisco, Boston is up there as well. Looking around just in our own neighborhood, I see that justice surely has to roll down some way. Something has to change. But it is hard for me to imagine what a revisioning would look like. Some of you know that my um, favorite kind of novels um, involve vampires, werewolves, or sort of dystopian alien futures. I love sci-fi fantasy, and some of it is because it offers a kind of escapism. Mostly that's the vampires and werewolves. There aren't that many really um, intense sort of dystopian and utopian ethical treatises on vampires and werewolves. They're just fun. Um, but the other reason that I enjoy reading sci-fi and fantasy is that I find that that genre often opens up new ways of imagining the world. Whether it's a dystopia that comes after a nuclear holocaust or a utopia that is built by people who have evolved out of our current experiences, I find in sci-fi and fantasy a sort of reimagining and an invitation to imagine the world in a radically different way than we experience now. It is so easy, living as we do, to imagine that where we live and how we live is the only way to live. We forget even recent history of revolutions, even recent recorded history where humans lived dramatically different when they lived dramatically differently in other places in the world as well. And so I look to sci-fi and fantasy authors to help us with this. 
Ursula Le Guin is one such author, and she actually um, also writes extensively about ethics and social justice. In a recent um, compilation called The Wave in the Mind, talks and essays on the writer, the reader, and the imagination, Ursula Le Guin talked about the importance of story in expanding our imagination and our ability then to work for change in our actual, real, lived world. I love some of what she has says here. She talks about um, the ways that we don't work for change in our world. We have good reason to be cautious, to be quiet, not to rock the boat, she writes. A lot of peace and comfort is at stake. The mental and moral shift from denial of injustice to consciousness of injustice is often made at a very high cost. And then it can't be unmade, she goes on. What your eyes have seen, what your eyes have seen, they have seen. Once you see the injustice, you can never again in good faith deny the oppression and defend the oppressor. She goes on to talk about the particular value of dystopian and utopian ideas in fiction writing, in helping us to expand our moral imaginations. Utopia and dystopia, she writes, are intellectual places. I write from passion and playfulness. My stories are neither dire warnings nor blueprints for what we ought to do. Most of them, I think, are comedies of human manners, reminders of the infinite variety of ways in which we have always come back to pretty much the same place and celebrations of the infinite variety by the invention of still more alternatives and possibilities. To me, the important thing is not to offer any specific hope of betterment, but by offering an imagined but persuasive alternative reality to dislodge my mind and sow the reader's mind from the lazy, timorous habit of thinking that the way we live now is the only way people can live. It is that inertia that allows the institutions of injustice to continue unquestioned. If we imagine that there might be a different way to live, perhaps a radically different way to live, what I wonder is the first step. Karn um, Ross was actually asked that question in the NPR article, what might be the first step for America, and he answered this way. I think every American, like every person, wants to feel in control of their affairs. We've got a profoundly unequal society. Americans are individualistic in the sense of wanting the best, but they are also highly collaborative. The way forward, Ross says, is politically engaging yourself with other people. Forget political labels, forget ideology, just see each other as humans and discuss what is best for you collectively. That is available for everybody from right now. People have to take the initiative themselves no politician is going to make this change for them. One of the core concepts in anarchy is people coming together to make collective decisions. And even as we sit within the reality of our current economic system and political system, we can see ways, little ways, that we can move forward in collective decision-making in our country. Some of that can happen very locally. And in fact, many folks would say that anarchy works best in relatively small communities where most people know each other or where you have a sense of shared bonds with each other, right? 
So we can start in our own neighborhoods, gathering in places where we have decisions to make and choosing a form of decision-making that brings together everybody's voices. We can even argue and work for those kinds of decision-making in big spheres in society. So restorative justice is one great example of using essentially anarchist ideals of collective um, decision-making within, for instance, the court system in America, which uses decidedly non-anarchist ideals for how it makes decisions. Restorative justice brings people together who have been harmed by an event and community stakeholders and invites that group to help to make the decision about what should happen to the person who has um, broken a law or um, otherwise acted out. Now, in more truly anarchist societies, that's simply how justice is done, right? Collective decision makers come together to talk about a breach in the community and to decide how to repair it best. But it can be done in our society as well, and in fact it is done. Restorative justice has come to a number of DC schools as an alternative form of dealing with students who are facing um, things that otherwise they would be expelled for or would face even some kind of juvenile court um, system. And it can be done in communities as well if they choose that system as an alternative to or a precursor to going into the court system. There are little ways that we can move forward with collective decision-making in our societies. One of my favorite um, sci-fi authors is N.K. Jemisin. And if you have not yet discovered her, I highly recommend that you go out right now and read her books, which are um, equally part, equal parts um, really fun and deeply disturbing um, for the most part. They also start kind of in the middle of worlds, so I'll warn you that you need about 100 pages before you figure out that all the characters are demigods and, um, you know, don't follow the normal laws of physics. Um, <laughs> She wrote a great cycle called The Inheritance Cycle and then a follow-up called Triptych, which had three short stories um, based on this uh, particular world she had created, um, which includes uh, three major gods and then a whole bunch of demigods, that, all of whom interact with um, mortals. And in this particular um, short story, she has um, a god, a tempest, um, and a demigod, it's his daughter, Glee, uh, talking about changing society in different ways. A Tempest has been going from town to town. Um, the backstory is that a Tempest is the god of rule and order um, and fairness and justice, um, but he actually hates change. That's one of his inflexibles. So everybody has positives and negatives. And he ends up being, um, uh, other gods have said that he, he's an exile basically, and so he has to travel as essentially a human through town. So he's been going to different towns, trying to change the social order to make things more fair and just, often by putting himself on the line. So he um, points out poor working conditions by um, becoming a, a mortal worker and falling to his death. Um, he wakes up again the next day because he's a god, so it's all right. Um, but... <laughs> But, but using that means to point out the working conditions so that then the community can see that there is a problem without loss of human life and um, address it. And sometimes they address it and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just cover up the death and move forward. So a Tempest and Glee are talking about how to change society, about this way that a Tempest is trying, and about whether it's possible. Selfishness, he says, is mortal's nature. This is a Tempest talking. 
I did not command them to build a society that arbitrarily treats some as important and others as not, yet they have done so. In his name, he does not add. They both find this offensive enough that there's no need to mention it. Change is mortal's nature too, Glee says quietly. We are at a time in our society, I believe, when change has become not only possible but mandatory. A time when we feel that things are crumbling around us. When the inequality in America becomes more and more present, when we cannot look away, as Le Guin said, you cannot see it, unsee it once you have seen it there. You know, I think about the administration that we currently have in the White House and the idea that we wouldn't have that administration without racism and xenophobia, homophobia, sexism, and misogyny, but that we also wouldn't have that administration without the experience of so many people that the country is not working anymore for them. And the idea that, in fact, our inexperience, our experience of things not working, our experiences of inequality make us more susceptible to all of those isms. People are at this time questioning the foundations of American society. As Karn Ross says, um, we are already heading into troubled waters. The system we took for granted of liberal democracy and capitalism is coming to an end, and it's up to us to discover what's next. The question for us, I think, is how much we will be able to envision new possibilities. Whether that possibility are, are tweaks to our capitalist system, whether they are significant changes that require policy to move forward, or whether they are work for collective decision-making, the bringing of anarchist ideals into our everyday experiences. What happens next is up to all of us. We are invited to be the imaginers, the envisioners of a new reality. And I would say it is, it is necessary for us to imagine it as broadly as possible, to think about different ways of being together, different ways of being America. I leave you with this quote from Rainier Maria Rilke. But now that so much is changing, isn't it time for us to change? Couldn't we try to gradually develop and slowly take upon ourselves, little by little, our part in the great task of love? Peace.